Welcome, brave believers. This is Kingdom Cast. I'm Sean, your host, and thank you for joining me tonight. This is the podcast where we search for knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of God's word and of this world so we can better relate his word to this world. And I'm glad that you're here with me tonight. Hopefully, we learn a lot tonight. We're going to do a QA, so we're going to take your live calls. Um, go ahead and put this on the bottom of the screen. It's also in the live chat already. So if you guys want to call in, be ready to be on camera. And you can ask me a question live. Just be courteous. Um, otherwise, we can take live questions from the chat. If you're in the live chat tonight, be sure to put all caps So with your question, right? Turn your caps lock on, type your question out, turn your caps lock off. That way, myself and the moderators can see it easily and you don't get your question missed. So I just want to give a big shout out to some people that are already here waiting in the chat. Callie J, Colin Crockett, Jason Kinney, Lisa Mendez, Vader Bear, Pepper Moon, Arc Builders, TZMC, Robert Daniels, Deciphering Truth, Cover to Cover with Jeremy Pierce, Jeremiah 1516, Mama Lou Bear, Earl Rogers, Obi Kenobi, Nobby Sky, Taraz Grow. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. So as you saw in the, in the opening there, guys, if you're interested, uh, it's in the video description below. We have our contextual study guide of scripture that we're working on. I'm going through all 66 books of the American Canon Plus an additional 14 to 17 additional books beyond that. There's going to be 80 plus books total that we're going to be including in this study guide. And it's going to go uh, book by book, segment by segment, chapter by chapter to help you to help show you all the points of context, the themes of context that are consistently in the scriptures all, everywhere. Um, and we will cover things like the eternal Torah, the covenants, the return of the king, the garden, um, the New Jerusalem, and, and I'll point out as I go through Genesis, through Revelation, and also Enoch and Jubilees, Second Ezra, Baruch, even the Testament of Twelve Patriarchs, we're going to go through a whole bunch of these books, and I'm going to show you with color coding how all those themes are consistently spoken of over and over and over again. You guys don't realize how many times the resurrection is mentioned in Paul's epistle letters. It's everywhere. Same thing with Torah. He's teaching Torah all the time. So I'm going to help you spot that. I'm going to help you show with color coding, like how do you know that how many times, uh, for for example, like in the book of James, did, did you guys realize he's speaking about the Torah like over 25 different times in the book of James? And so, I'm you know, I'm constantly working on it. Like I said, it links in the video description below. This is probably going to be a, a you know, a good seven to, to 10 month journey um, to where we can get to a point where we can actually get it published. If you want to help us raise funds for that, as, for, as well as get, an additional copy, that's what the description uh, explanation is in the, in the link below. It's on our Patreon. It's at the $20 a month family tier. And that way you can get early access to books as I complete them before they go to a final publisher and uh, and get taken care of like that. So that way you can have access to them in the meantime. So I think we just released uh, the Book of Romans recently. And so and I'm still finishing up Enoch and uh, Jubilees or excuse me, Enoch and Genesis and Jubilees is, is on the list as well, as well as other New Testament books that I've just done on the side when I need to take a break from Enoch and Jubilees because those are huge books. But um, we're releasing these as we are ready. So a big shout out to Tom Kaczynski. He's been helping us a lot with these. And I think he's across the pond in England and the UK. So I don't think he can see this tonight. But um, it's probably he's probably already asleep at this point in the night. But big thanks to Tom. He's been helping me get it in a, a very professional format, a very good look. And so, in fact, I'll show you real quick what he's done for us to get this into a nice look. So this is the, the study guide itself. This is the book of Romans. And as you can see, they're color coded. Let me try to make this a little bit bigger. As you can see the text is color coded. 
So we'll be talking about the son of the father, right? We know he's not the father. He's the son of the father. And here's all the different places that you can just quickly scan through and say, oh, the light pink, talking about the son of the father everywhere, all throughout scripture, as well as the priesthoods. Those are in purple. Uh, if we go to the first resurrection, is going to be in a green. New Jerusalem's in a like a lavender. Eternal Torah is in blue. So you can just kind of go through the books and you can see how all these different segments He's talking about these different points of context. We have supporting scriptures that are also color-coded on the on the far right margin. And then at the bottom, I have 10 different ways to find context with little bullet points layered throughout the text as well, just to kind of for extra homework if you want to do that. And just to help you guide you if you're stuck on a passage, you know, like for example, say you got this this on screen right here. And you're stuck on this passage here in Romans 8, 2 says, For in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set you free from the law of sin and death. And you're like, well, man, what does that mean? Oh, my goodness. So if you don't get enough out of the actual commentary in the blue eternal Torah, then you can go down here and you look. You like, oh, I need to determine figures of speech. So therefore, I can look for other places in, in the text where I have the law of sin and death pointed out. Right. So you can see, oh, it's a figure of speech. What is the spirit of life that sets you free? Well, that's He's actually alluding to the resurrection, but this is part of the Torah. So that's why we kind of explain transgressing the commandments is the law of sin and death. Keeping the commandments is the law of freedom, right? This is leads to the eternal life that you're promised. So just a little example, something like that. But if you guys have any questions tonight, be sure to put them in all caps and I'll be able to get to them. Um, and you're welcome to call in. The link is on the screen below and it's also in the live chat. Yes, Colin, if you have any questions. Uh, thank you, Miss Cynthia. Uh, we're on the mend. We're, we're taking our, our prescribed and, and recommended vitamins, and uh, we're on the mend. Appreciate your concern. Let's pull this down. Okay. All right, guys. Anita Vegas says she's printing Romans tomorrow. The study guide is a blessing. That's awesome. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully you enjoy it. Speaking of tomorrow, as you can see here, Uncommon Ground, we're coming back tomorrow night. That'll be on West Blaze Music's channel. Be sure to go subscribe so you don't miss announcements for our new episodes. So we'll be coming back tomorrow night with the new episode. And guys, you might be wondering why I'm doing something on a Tuesday night. I normally never do anything on a Tuesday night, but um, we had a, a lighthouse meeting got re rescheduled. I normally have lighthouse meetings on Tuesday night, um, <clears throat> in addition to other times throughout the week. But definitely the the big meeting that I sit in on that's uh, with all the owners and all the developers that's on Tuesday night. So um, we they rescheduled that, so I had some free time. I wanted to wanted to give you guys an opportunity to ask some questions. Uh, Prodigal Son's asking, is braiding hair good or bad? I, I honestly, I don't think it is, brother. I think it's a, um, honestly, if there's a trend where you're braiding hair in honor of the dead or in honor to another God, yeah, that would be bad, but I would have to take it in context. Otherwise, hairstyle, hairstyles in general, um, just for the sake of, you know, the, the hairstyle. I mean, sometimes women braid their hair for utilitarian reasons, just to get it out of their way for while they're working or, or doing or cooking or playing sports um fighting mma <laughs> whatever whatever the ladies decide to do is a utility some men do the same thing right 
I don't see anything in scripture that tells you not to braid your hair. I do see things saying, do not involve yourself in um, augmentations to your body, whether it's through clothing, hair style or tattoos or things like that, that are in honor of the dead as a part of worshiping false gods. But I don't think the average person braiding their hair is doing that. Uh, Andrea Coughlin is asking, with all the constant talk of how the jab is the mark of the beast, how do we approach this topic? Well, um, I, hopefully through scripture. That's what we always encourage, guys. You got you want to approach all these topics from scripture. If you're if you're if someone's trying to relate a modern current event to scripture, well, then you need to go to the scriptures and figure out what does the scriptures actually define and detail about what they're trying to say this is, right? So if we look at the mark of the beast, uh, we see that it it comes with um, it comes with the second beast. Okay. It doesn't come just willy nilly. It comes with the second beast. So there's a reason that it gives us a progression from revelation, uh, 12 and 13, 12 introduces the dragon. Then it explains there's a dragon who has his power. He has great authority. He gives his power to the first beast. And then there's a second beast that pops up. And then that's that second beast is the one that institutes this idea of the mark, okay? So this is the second beast was permitted to give breath to the image of the first beast so the image could speak and speak all who refused to worship to be killed. The second beast required all people, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand or their forehead. Um, and, I mean, you know, the jab is not on your right hand or your forehead, for one. And I know people like to say, well, that's an idiomatic phrase for your allegiance. And I, I actually agree with that. I understand how it's likened unto in the Old Testament, your obedience to God is likened unto a mark on your forehead, you know, uh, or on your hand, because it, you know, it's, it symbolizes your thoughts and your actions, right? Um, but this particular thing is that, you know, you're, it's not, it's, it's, you know, it's a medical thing going into your, into your arm. That's, I would think it's experimental gene therapy. It's not a, it's not anything to what they actually say it is, but ultimately the second beast hasn't shown up because the first beast hasn't shown up. That's why he's called the second beast. Um, he comes and makes pe the people worship the first beast. That's not happening right now either. So that's how I would try to approach it. It's just from the context of scripture. Nobby Sky is asking, in your opinion, what is the best translation for books like Enoch and Jubilees? Um, sister, I would, I would suggest to cross-reference the available translations we have. So both uh, Earl's Charles and Lawrence, um, you know, those are the most popular ones. If you can find another alternate versions of them, you're welcome. I know the Sefer put out their own as well. Um, but try to cross-reference as, as much as you can. But the reason why you always see me using the Charles is because he was an actual Greek. Um, he, was a, he was a Greek scholar at Oxford in the 1800s. And so he had a, and he was a Gia scholar. So that's that's why he, in his translation, he puts both the Gia's and the Greek in uh, in comparison to each other, whenever they weren't harmoniously synchronized word for word and there were slight differences, he put the comparison side by side in his translation. So actually by reading the Charles translations, you're already getting two different translations, both from the Gias and the Greek. So it's kind of helpful in my opinion. Um, and yeah, so, but it still doesn't hurt to uh, cross-reference Lawrence as well. In fact, I think even... Um, can't remember if the, who's who's this was. I got this uh, on my desk next to me, and can't remember who translated it. 
One second, guys. Well, it's got the Ford by Heiser. But yeah, this is the Charles. This is the Charles. Okay, so either way, I also have the Lawrence somewhere around here. Hopefully that's a help too, sister. Uh, Jared Rice, you know, I we'll see. You never know until until they see. I mean, I'm pretty sure they said that with the last guy, didn't they? Did they say that with the last guy? With Pope John Paul? I can't remember. But honestly, I, I, I'm not huge on the uh, what's the word? Um, I'm not huge on the Pope. Um, all the all the prophecy that comes about around the Pope itself. Um, I'm not big on that. Um, I have read them. I don't talk about them a lot because personally, it's a misdirect, in my opinion. It's a, I think that the, the Scarlet Woman is riding the beast, and I think the Scarlet Woman is the Catholic Church. But I don't, I, I mean, ultimately, she's going to get eaten by the beast. She's going to get turned on and betrayed by the beast, and um, the Vatican is going to get destroyed by, by the beast because they serve a purpose for a time. Um, whether that's in our lifetime or not, whether this particular Pope is the last one before the Antichrist shows up, the actual beast himself, I, I honestly don't, I don't know. It wouldn't seem right from my understanding of, of, uh, the, of where we are in eschatology, as far as where we are in the timeline of how these prophet prophetic events are unfolding. Uh, personally, I, like I've said before, um, many different broadcasts, I think we're like 50 to 70 years away before we actually see the revelation or the revealing of Apollyon before he actually begins his 42 month reign. So I just think that there's a lot of lot of the world yet that's not in a position for him to accomplish what it says he accomplishes. So, um, yeah, that's my thoughts on it, basically. And if Agenda 2030 gets their way, well. They, he may be in a better spot to accomplish the things he wants to because they, they definitely want to take out a large portion of humanity. So um, we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. But I don't, I don't give much credence to the Pope himself. He's just a puppet that's going to be um, turned on at some point. Hey, Jared, thanks for your, your question. I, I don't really mess with the ley lines much, brother. It's, uh, it's hard to... Let me put it like this. I've never seen anyone develop or show me a an actual break, a demonstrable, repeatable breakdown of how they're coming to their conclusions on the ley lines and what they mean and how much power they had and what they can do. To me, it's just all seems to be speculation with so much zeal and fervor. People don't seem to question it. And then next thing you know, they're passing videos around about ley lines. And I'm just like, okay, man, yeah, I agree that there's magnetic points, especially if we live in a, like we've talked about on Common Ground and I've talked about on, on my other channel, Kingdom of Context. I do believe we live in an electromagnetic reality. I do believe that we're under a ferment, as scripture tells us. And, um, and therefore, naturally, anything that, if you have electromagnetism that's surging inside of a uh, dome-shaped firmament, it's going to have its, its um, I don't know the, the correct word, so forgive me if there's um, electricians out there, but it's going to have its, its um, shapes of resonance, if you will. But uh, I don't know if it creates the ley lines. Like, I've seen people talk about ley lines, and, I, again, I have no way to test it, and I haven't seen them show me how they tested it. It seems just like a bunch of conjecture, but...
Okay. All right, Chase. Chase is asking, Nexus 20 commands the Israelites to make altars of dirt or stone. When should we do that today? Well, when you have an ordained priest of God. Now, um, personally, I think that this you have to have a priesthood. This is why it's been prophesied that we'll be without priest, without sacrifice, without author. I think it's in Hosea 2. Um, so that's why I'm not out in my backyard or, you know, in any of my property. And I'm not trying to build an actual altar of unhewn stone. Um, I'm not an ordained priest. So it's not just about the, the mechanism by which you would offer something to the father. It's um, supposedly there's a priesthood involved. Now, that's to the best of my understanding. There seems to be a couple caveats in in scriptures. Um, or at least one that I can think of right off the top of my head, and that's going to be in Judges 13, Samson's parents. Uh, they want to offer to the um, to the angel that shows up. They want to do an offering to God, but the angel actually lights the fire. So I don't know, and so supposedly those are Danites. So the only thing that, um, with the limited information we have in that chapter, the only thing that allows me to think that that still could involve a priest, which is the rest of Judges, the book of Judges, which tells us about a Levite priest whom um, is for hire. I, I know that sounds weird, but it's like it's like he's uh, there. He's he's a nomadic in his region and he's wandering. I think it's in chapter 20, uh, 18 and 19. And uh, and a guy sees him and says, hey, man, I want you to come live with me. I'll pay our expenses. I'll pay for you. you you'd be my you'd be my servant of God. You'd be my priest. Right. I don't know if they had that kind of flexibility or if that was just them doing whatever seemed right in their own eyes, as the book of Judges says multiple times. Uh, but I do know that it, with the case of Sansa's parents, the angel that's there lights the fire. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful moment, actually. It's actually reminiscent of Exodus and Leviticus, where the angel that was with them would also dedicate the altar and dedicate the tabernacle to a meeting by lighting the fire. So it's, it's a unique thing. Um, personally, you know, if someone wants to to do that, I'm not going to stop them. There's, there's, doesn't seem to be a direct command against the person. I would suggest he's someone that is circumcised in his heart and is um, uh, the elder of the family. If you're going to build an altar of hyunhyun stone and and try to remember, you're just cooking a meal, right? There's no special, there's no voodoo here. There's no, there's no magic. It's just you cooking a meal before Yahweh and dedicating it to Yahweh. So if you wanted, instead of taking your, you know, your grill. That you buy from Home Depot and doing that. If you want to make an altar of honey and stone and do it that way, uh, you can you can do that. Uh, but again, you're not a priest, so you're not doing it for the atonement of anybody. Um, but you, if you want to do that in memorial, it's up to you and your family. So just keep that in mind. There's this contextual people that are in these positions of these instructions that you're referencing. Uh, pretty, pretty simple in my understanding. Terra's grow uh, that tattoos themselves are no, no, like we're not supposed to tattoo our bodies with ink. Um, seems to be pretty obvious in Leviticus 19. Jason Kinney, um, from what I've heard about Neuralink, it again, it could be connected, it could be some software behind it, uh, or the beginning phases and testing of software that could could be could, uh, implemented, if you will, into the with the actual mark itself. But again, mark, mark itself is not implemented until the second beast shows up, which means the first beast has to show up. 
So I think that um, there, there could be a lot of different types of uh, technology that could, could culminate to allow. I mean, I think this is what they're pushing for with transhumanism research in general. But ultimately, it, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. All right, Rook Nesterim is asking, what did Messiah mean by a drink of my blood and eat of my flesh? I ran into some Catholics that defend this through Eucharist. Yeah, I know. Yeah, the Eucharist, the idea of transubstantiation, that's a Catholic idea. It's actually a pagan idea that is brought in by Catholicism. Um, it's not in Scripture. Yeshua is not, in John chapter 5, he's not talking about cannibalism. He's not talking about a mystical, magical idea of transubstantiation where suddenly wine turns into blood as you drink it. Like, that's just straight occultism. Um, and, and it's actually just... It's actually just silly because like there's actual magic that the occult does that's le that's legit as means like something actually happens. But with the idea of the Eucharist, it's literally just in your imagination. It's it's just it's like them trolling believers. You know, it's because nothing actually happens. It's just something they tell you to believe. And then which kind of like, you know, when they tell you to believe NASA's legit, that you live on a ball in space. It's not something they can prove or show you. They're just trolling you and expect you to believe everything they say. So it's. It's not even, you know, again, it's not real. Um, it, it's not what Messiah meant. He's talking specifically about the idea that he's the, the bread of life that came down. So there's, you know, in the same passage, he says this. So there's another, you know, um, there's another metaphor he's imploring to say that he is the bread of life, that people should, you know, not live on, on, a, 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 on just normal food, but you got to take the bread of God, right? You got to, that's what's going to give you eternal life. It's, and all of it is a metaphor for him, right? For him and what, so then we look into the details of him, of Yeshua himself, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. You're like, okay, well, he's the one that becomes the high priest of the covenant to make atonement for you. He's the one that calls your name up for the Father and the angels and resurrects you to eternal life. So he's the one that has the fullness of the power of the Spirit to give to you, to help you in this life, to walk out in your discipleship. So therefore, yes, you must, metaphorically, you must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. Just take him, take him all in. You've got to, Believe he, you know, it was sent by the Father. And then you got to practice his behavior. So this is a, a metaphor that he's imploring in that chapter for sure. Jason, I totally understand, brother. I, you know, but before we delve into... Um, things that are not appointed for us as far as job positions, you know, things that specifically were appointed for priests. Let's let's learn the way to your matters of the law first, right? Let's practice those, get those down first. Let's make peace with our family if we feel that there's any strife anywhere in our family. You know, let's let's practice the Deuteronomy 15 charity with our local neighbors and our people in our town that are destitute. And, you know, let's uh, there's a lot of things to serve him in a way that doesn't require us stepping outside of the our position in life that's been allocated to us in prophecy. And, um, you know, if there's an angel that shows up and, you know, starts saying that, you know, I mean, that's, that has to, that, then you'd fall into Deuteronomy 13 testing. But the point is that, you know, there's a lot of things to get down first. And I'm not saying you're not doing them. I'm just, I'm speaking to everybody listening. You know what I'm saying? So I, my heart, Hey, I've had the same heart, brother. I've had the same thoughts. My wife and I have talked about on Shabbats. We've talked about like literally, reading the, the duties of the Levites and practicing their motions that they would do in the temple, you know, with the different things to Leviticus one through seven and just see what it would feel like to go through the motions and do those. 
And then I thought, man, should I build an altar of onion stone like for Shavuot and for Sukkot, like and and just give a thanks offering of, and joy and everything? Then I'm like, you know, I'm not an ordained priest. I see people doing that, and people doing that, and encouraged to do that in the priesthood. And then I'm like, all right, yeah, but but it seems like everybody did it in Exodus 12. But that was a special circumstance because after Exodus 12, he tells them all. Don't do that anymore. I want you to do it. We're in the place to put my name with my ordained priests. So, you know what I'm saying? So, like, I totally understand your heart, brother. And I, I just, um, like I said, I would just, I would just spend time getting down those weightier matters first because we've already been prophesied that we'll be without priest, temple, and sacrifice for a long period of time. And I think that we're in that time right now until Yeshua returns. So, hopefully, that's a help for you. But I, I hear your heart, brother. Okay. Uh, Deepholz is asking if we were to have a one-world religion, what happens to modern-day Christian churches? Well, they'll have to make a choice as far as whom they actually serve. Ecumenicalism is uh, 100% non-scripture. So it, what it, the way it becomes first, the way it's portrayed first by, by people I've heard talk about it that are prominent evangelical charismatic style uh, personalities, high-profile personalities, is they'll talk about ecumenical thought, like, oh, well, we need to, we need to, like, get all the churches together, and even with the Catholic Church, we need to get together, and we need to focus on unity. But unfortunately, then that becomes, if you're going to bring in someone like the Catholic Church and try to focus on unity because you think we need to get away from any type of of uh, denominationalism, that means now you're coming. The Catholic Church is not going to step into that scenario and say. Oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna defer all decisions to the Baptists, or to the non-denominationals, or to the Assembly of Gods. That's not how that works. Bring the you bring you try to bring in the Catholic Church. They're gonna be like, we've got the Vicar of Christ on Earth right over here. Who who else would we need in command? You see what I'm saying? So this is where it's a slippery slope to me. It's very deceptive. And I'm I'm actually would love to in the future if I had time like do deep dive research into some of these uh, high profile characters that are pushing for ev uh, ecumenicalism, specifically including the Catholic Church because I'm wondering if they're actual just straight Freemasons, um, or if they're you know just not who they say they are basically because I to me that's the they're either so ignorant of the word that they that they've been politically in, um, intimidated to try to push for this ecumenical movement with the Catholic Church or their duplicitous plan. Um, because also the Catholic Church wants to hold hands with all of Islam and and you know you're like okay well they don't even worship Yeshua as the Messiah and high priest of the covenant. They don't they don't even respect that. They don't even I mean they literally in their mantra they say Allah you know has no son you know so like they they worship a different God altogether. And so why would you, you know, again, highly ignorant and, and intimidated by political correctness or straight duplicitous plan? So I'm, I don't think uh, any modern day church should be involved in ecumenicalism. I think they should stick to the scriptures and just try to teach their people the commandments and focus on that first and foremost. Um, that's my thought on it. Okay, Stephanie Adara. Stephanie Atara Rose is asking, do you think it takes time and dedication to get the Holy Spirit? 
meaning getting to the meat of the word before you get the fruits, the spirit fully getting to the meat of the word before you get the spirit fully. A lot of people claim it, but they're actually, a lot of people claim it. So, uh, okay. It looks like you're, I don't know if you try to, I don't see another comment by you. It looks like you're kind of got chopped up or shortened. I know you only got so many characters. Um, do you think it takes time and dedication to get the Holy Spirit? Uh, it takes a repentant heart to get the Holy Spirit. So that's, you, if your heart's ripe, if your heart is ready to be repentant and to do the Creator's behavior, and, and you want to mold your behavior after Yeshua, who's the son of the Creator, and, and you know, because they have the same behavior. So that's that's what it requires to get the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will flow through you the more dedicated to that behavior, to the to become like Yeshua, the more like that you are, the more that you walk in love towards God and your fellow man, the more the Holy Spirit will flow through you. Okay. So it just literally takes a decision of the heart. It can happen in less than two or three minutes. Um, but as far as, you know, ministering or the, the gifts of the Spirit for ministry that specifically, um, he gives that as he chooses. So um, I've had that happen to me in the past. And I, you know, I only asked to turn it down at one point, but it's not like something I can just turn on and off. It was he gave it as he chooses. So anyway. Um, I hope that helps. Meaning, getting to the meat of the word before you get the spirit fully. And also, sometimes getting to the meat of the word means fuller understanding of the word. And you're not going to get that without the Holy Spirit anyway. So that's, um, to me, that's the most ignored effect or outcome or fruit of having the Holy Spirit already inside of you. Is that people who desire to actually read and understand the word. Like that's a gift that that's a, that is a part of the fruit of the spirit being in you that you're prompted in your innermost thoughts and emotions that you actually want to know his word and understand it. Uh, and then when you get that understanding, that's given to you by the almighty. That is a gift of the spirit. That is a fruit of the spirit, if you will. So, um, yeah, hopefully I, I address that to, to the vein you were asking. It uh, looks like we have a caller calling in. All right. This is Cypress. Hey, man, am I in? Hey, how you doing? I'm Sean. Very Welcome. good. Very good. I've been watching for a while, man. How's it going? Okay, cool. Yeah, thanks for calling in. Yeah, it's going well. What's up, brother? Yeah, so I just want to say I uh, appreciate like all your content, man. Like You have phenomenal work out there, and you're doing work for Mosai, and you know, you've really? like definitely hammered down points like Firmament and just like, you know, anti-Trinity stuff, which I'm all on board for. So that's okay. pretty sweet. So like my first question or can I like, ask multiple maybe, or is that? Sure, what's your first? Yeah, okay. So first one is like, because like, I know a lot of people are talking about like the uh, the Jabiru being like the mark and whatnot. And like, I definitely don't think it is because like, I still think there's so much more time for like, I guess, like a set in stone New World Order religion to be established. So like when it says like to worship the image of the beast, like what's the image? And like, by the way, like I'm a very like new person with scripture so i don't really if this is like a rookie question then <laughs> but yeah so like what's the image that they'll worship and like what do you think the, the like religion will be of the world well it'll be a straight occultism and this has been um i've done videos on this where the enemy has actually declared this as a part of their long-term agenda to remove christianity from not just the united states but worldwide um it is occultism that's brought back it is you know, Baal worship, it's it's the same false religion that we've battled for all this time since the Tower of Babel. 
So I've got on screen here. The, the first beast is whom the kings of the earth give their allegiance to. It's whom the rest of the world wonders after. Okay. So this is, uh, they're, they're amazed by it. Um, they worship the dragon who had given authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who's like the beast who can wage war against it? So I've tried to show with great detail with a lot of videos previously, excuse me, that this first beast is the return of a guy named Apollo or Apollyon in the, the Latin transliteration. And it's the return of a guy from ancient times from Genesis 10 mentioned a guy named Nimrod. And this is a guy, and there's, there's a lot to that, but that's the short version of this to get to the actual Mark concept. When he returns, he only has 42 months to persecute and make war with the saints, speak blasphemies against heaven, and pretty much create destruction on the earth. Okay, so he's going to, it's a terrifying reign where he tries to take over the world. And he's doing this in the authority of the dragon. Okay, so then a second little beast pops out that is like the cheerleader for the, for the first beast. All right. And so it says, I saw another beast. This is in Revelation 13, 11. I saw another beast rising out of the earth. This beast had two horns like a lamb, but spoke like a dragon. And it, this beast exercised all the authority of the first beast and caused the earth and those who dwell on it to worship the first beast whose mortal wound had been healed. And this is where he starts to fool people. And this is why he's referenced as the false prophet in Revelation 19, because he fools people in a religious fashion. Okay, so he said the second beast performed great signs to cause even fire from heaven to come down to the earth in the presence of the people. That's something I actually mentioned earlier in the broadcast tonight. One of the answers to the questions about how the angel in Judges 13 actually lights the fire for Samson's parents to, to kind of dedicate the sacrifice they were doing. Same thing happens in Leviticus chapter 9. Same thing happens in First, First Kings chapter 8. Same thing happens in First Kings chapter 18 on Mount Carmel with Elijah. So this is the second one that's performing a great sign to fool people. Okay, and it says because of the signs it was given to perform on behalf of the first beast it deceived those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image to the first beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. So this is just like in days of old, they would make an image to Baal and worship Baal. They're going to do the exact same thing again when they get the when they suppress when they through all the machinations they have going that they're going to ramp up. They're going to cause the love of people to grow cold. This means people move away from faith in God. And they're going to be more susceptible to this type of deception. And these two characters are going to show up performing all this authority in the authority of Satan. They're going to take that authority and try to attack the world and deceive the world into worshiping the first beast specifically, which historically has always been Baal. So the entire Bible actually gives you the bad guys at the end. It's the same bad guys that we've been battling since Genesis 3. And, well, yeah, Genesis 3 and then also in Genesis 11. Okay, so it's it's the same bad guys. Uh, if you haven't, I don't know how familiar you are with my channel, Kingdom Cast, but I'd, I'd recommend checking out my playlist on this channel. It's called Investigating Babylon, and I systematically walk you through these ideas. Okay, because I'm giving you the I'm giving you a super cliff notes right now, but but yeah, if you check out Investigating Babylon series, I'm, I systematically walk through who are the bad guys and what have they been doing this whole time, and why. Once you get that information in you, you'll be able to hopefully you'll be able to go to revelation and you'll be able to say okay well i see okay i see what's going on here you know what i'm saying and i do cross-reference revelation quite a bit and i'm not even done with the series i've got seven more installments to finish out the series and by the time i'm done with it hopefully lord willing it'll be um pretty much undeniable you'll be able to see and with lots of examples what i'm talking about so that's 
that's the idea is that the uh the second beast makes this image it's just a, an idol of old just like the idols you see like in in the old testament right we the world has kind of moved away from blatant idolatry now it's more subversive it's more like um it's more hidden it's more underground it's more low-key right yeah but it's going to get back to the day like yeshua said at his coming it'd be like the days in noah okay it's going to get back to this blatant idolatry where people are openly doing the occult. They're openly worshiping these idols. And if you're not worshiping it, they're going to track you. They're going to find you. They're going to persecute you. Okay. So that's because the, the machinations or the deceptions and the, the, the ways that the enemy deceives people and how it enforces that deception is consistent all throughout the Bible. It just takes on a different veneer, an outer shell, an outer covering to be molded into new cultures as time goes by. That's why I said right now in the American culture where most people would openly reject occultism, right? If you if you went down to the local CVS on the corner and behind the CVS was a statue of Bell where they're sacrificing kids, you would reject that. You'd probably rally around with the townspeople and go knock that thing down as fast as possible, right? But yet across the street from the CVS is a Planned Parenthood where they're doing that practice and no one's going and knocking down Planned Parenthood. It's subversive. Right. It's the same practices, and I go over this in my best game Babylon series. Um, the same practices of what they used to do at these actual big statue idols, now they do subversed and sometimes underground, and, and they're trying to bring it above ground as fast as possible. It's called externalization of the hierarchy, that they've a plan they've had in motion for about almost a hundred years now, and so. Um, we're not there yet, right? You don't see big statue. You see a big statue to Buddha in, in Eastern countries, right? In Asian countries. But in the United States, most Western countries, you see statues commemor commemorating um, historic or heroic figures, but they're not being actual worship. People aren't taking actual animal or human sacrifices to the statue of Lincoln across the Washington Monument, right? So right. they're just there to, you know, be a tourist to trap, right? But and, and they, they represent a narrative, but it's not the same practices happening literally in the presence of that idol. What we're going to be seeing with the second beast is he's going to make an image of the first beast. And it's my understanding that this is why this image itself comes to life, is that he it's like an AI. So therefore, you're going to have an AI image of the beast who can fool people to say, you need to worship me, you need to bow down to me. And if you don't, take this mark that represents our authority you're not going to be able to participate in society and we're going to kill you so this is where you get great persecution on the earth um and that way the the beast and here's here's why because in the short amount of time they have they have 42 months they don't have time to make uh five million gold statues like they they would try to make a gold statue in like every town back in the day right or a statue of silver or bronze or whatever. They don't have time to do that when he shows up because they're doing so much else. So much else. They're going to war against the nations and trying to overtake kingdoms and everything. So they don't have time to go out and mass produce and take over a factory. And there's not enough gold to go to all the places around, around the circle of the earth to actually make these idols and statues. So therefore, it's faster if they can have an AI that can impress people and that can be broadcasted through our modern-day Internet, right? So that way it would fool people all over the place that this thing would have. Now, whether it's a, just a digital creation or an actual AI, we'll never know because it's going to be 
fool, tomfoolery. It's going to be deception regardless. But that's that's uh, the quickest, shortest breakdown I can give you right now. Right. You know, great answer. Yeah, because like I think, because yeah, like there still has to be a lot more put into place, right? And I think that you know they'll definitely you know mix in like consciousness and I guess like that'll be part of transhumanism, right? Obviously, like with the jabs and everything. And I think like what's it called? Like those AI sort of things where it's all those um, VR sets. Like, have you seen those? Like those yeah. Yeah, I think like, like, it'll like be Oculus. something like that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where it's like they'll permanently like, you know, mingle your consciousness with like AI or whatever. Like who knows, right? But yeah, yeah, that's it's definitely their goal to put us in the most catatonic state as long as possible, whether it's through prescription pharmacia or it's through video games. They definitely want you un, unobserving and uninterested and non-participating in the in what they're doing. So they definitely want to get you catatonic, even if you're still conscious. So, right. But yeah, absolutely, brother. That's um that's my short breakdown on that on all that. Yeah. So. Cause like you mentioned Nimrod, like is Nimrod Apollyon or Apollo or whatever? No, uh-huh. that's the Apollo Apollyon character that comes back. Yeah. And I've so got a video. Said- if you just type in, um, because it'll be a much bigger conversation than we have time for tonight. Yeah. Because I go through all the scriptures. So if you type in the YouTube search bar, Kingdom in Context, Apollyon, you'll see it's it's like one of my most popular videos. So you'll see me break that down fully. It's also part seven of my Investigating Babylon series. So I go over more information in that series as well. So both of those videos should be able to help you. Right. Awesome, man. Yeah. Case for that. Yeah. Awesome, man. Yeah. I'm not used to this. So I think I'm going to head out because like. It's okay, brother. Kinda, it's okay. Yeah, I'm not yeah, used to this. Yeah, if I answered your questions, that's fine. Yeah. No, you I'll did. Yeah. yeah. questions from the chat. That was great, man. Yeah. Nice talking to you, man. Like, I'll All be right. keeping up with the content. So keep doing Thanks, what you're Cyprus. doing, man. It's, it's Am I saying work. this right? Is it Cyprus? Am I saying Cyprus. Right? Yeah. Right. Cyprus. right. Sorry. Yep. Sweet. All right. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, it was, Thank it was you. nice to meet you, Sean. Bro. Much love, man. You too, brother. You yep. Time. Adios, man. Take care. You too. All right. Let's take another question from the live chats. Uh, Vader Bear is here tonight. He's asking, what would you recommend to say to someone who says that what they believe in, even if it's not in scripture, is given to them by Ralph? Yeah. Well, you might want to call their bluff. <laughs> You'd say, look, um, if it's if it's not in scripture and if it can be debunked with scriptures, we got a problem. Right. So there's lots of people that um, I mean, because really, when you start drilling down into actually what they believe, I promise you the scriptures have addressed it. And yeah. Yeah, you just you just want to lovingly try to keep getting them to read the scriptures. Because this happens with a lot of new Christians. And a lot of times people get offended when I say new Christians because they'll be like, well, I've been a believer for 15 years. And I'm like, but have you been reading your Bible for 15 years? Have you been actually trying to understand the words in this book for 15 years? Or have you just now picked up an interest because you realize the the Holy Spirit has sparked your heart to actually know it. Now you're starting to study it for maybe the last two years or three years. But do you really know it yet? So, I mean, that's why you, I mean, not, don't even, don't even look at me, you know, just take any other dude that's actually read the Bible for more than 10 years, not, not to, not, not someone that just looks for a verse or two to post every now and then, 
or someone that's just trying to win a debate. So they do a topical search through Google, but someone that's actually read your Bible, if someone can't explain to you um, the priesthood of Yeshua, if they can't explain to you, you know, the, the idea of the biblical cosmology, if they can't explain the first resurrection, those are, this is like fundamental concepts, like starting place concepts, right? That they can't explain to you the relevance of, of God's instructions for discipleship, what he calls, you know, references as Torah and Hebrew, it, you know, you've, you've got some issues, right? Because most of the time people don't believe in the actual resurrection. Uh, I've unfortunately, I've even run into a lot of flat earthers that don't actually understand or believe in the actual resurrection. And they think that they understand biblical cosmology, but they don't realize how the first resurrection has everything to do with biblical cosmology. So this is where you, you know, I'm not trying to give an improper or unfair litmus test, but the question you're asking me, I've seen a tons in the last six years, especially when we get online, you get a lot of people come in random and claiming stuff. Oh, father showed me this father showed me that. And I'm like, well, that's interesting because Father showed Isaiah something exactly opposite. So who's correct? Who am I going to believe? I'm sorry. I'm going to go with Isaiah because Isaiah teaches the gospel of the kingdom. And you have no clue that whether the new Jerusalem is literal or figurative. So going to go with Isaiah on this one, right? So just little stuff like that. You see um, people make grand, bold claims because they get excited about their faith and they feel they want to feel like God is using them and talking to them. And so I don't chastise them and I usually don't berate them. And you don't definitely don't want to tear them down. You want to build them up in love. That's why I always say, just keep sowing that word into them, right? Just keep encouraging them to read the scriptures, you know, because this is what happens. This is the danger when someone says that, oh, Yah showed me this. And you're like, okay, well, I'm thinking of 10 scriptures right now that would, that would refute that thought because that person has stopped. If, if Yah has showed them, what good is is it to them for them to actually read their Bible anymore? If they can get all the information they need downloaded supernaturally, why did God give us and and with great care and at the persecution of faithful faithful priests, why did He have this word passed down and preserved to us through the scribes? Like, there's no point if He could just download it to our brains when we become a believer. There's a reason. I mean, why? You know, look. Let's go to. Um, Oh, this will be fun. This will be fun. Let's go to the book of Enoch. I think this, I think I already got it open on a tab somewhere. Got so many tabs open. Let's see here. Um, here we go. Let's check out an example of what I'm trying to say. That's not it. Put it on screen. Okay. All right, Vader Bear, if you're still there. This is chapter 82 of the Book of Enoch. And this is where, check. I mean, check out. So Enoch says to Methuselah, Now, my son, all these things I'm recounting to you and writing down for you, I've revealed to you everything and given you books concerning all these. So preserve, my son, Methuselah, the books from your father's hand and see that you deliver them to the generations of the world. Enoch was shown everything, guys. He was shown the entire creation model. And he was shown right behavior, which is called righteousness, which is called the wisdom of God, which is called Torah and modern vernacular. He was shown everything. 
He was shown the end of the world. He was shown all of it, the whole story from start to finish. He saw the Messiah. He saw the Messiah glorified. He saw the Messiah reigning in the millennial reign. He saw the first and second resurrections. He saw it all. And he needs to write it down, pass it on, and instruct his son to give it to the generations of the world. This is why this, it's, to me, it's extremely dangerous and foolhardy when believers run around saying, oh, I've got the Holy Spirit. I don't need to know. I don't need to know the Bible. And I'm like, and there's even other teachers that I've heard lately that are just breaking my heart. Prominent teachers that are saying, oh, the Bible's never meant to be written down. I'm like, then why did God give it to man and tell him to write it down, preserve it, and pass it on? It's it's important for us to read what's been written down and passed on for us. Um, yeah, excuse my passion, brother, but that's that's the way I feel on it. Sovereign being, yes. Are you working for money? Are you causing other people to work for money? Are you, I mean, unless picking berries is your avocation and you take those to market and sell, um, other unless fishing is something you take to the market and sell. Otherwise, you know, I, I'm, I would always encourage focusing on the Father, learning the scriptures. If you want to do that while you're fishing, put some audio Bible on while you're fishing on the Sabbath. That's a win-win, bro. I love it. I love it. Do it. Pick berries with headphones on and maybe listen to the scriptures, learn the word a little bit better um, as you're doing some other things. But just remember, Sabbath is about the idea of resting from your vocation, from your occupational labor that causes you profit or causes other people to work for profit. So that's, you know, this is why Yeshua tells us that it is good. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Okay. So um, if, if you want to go volunteer somewhere and help somebody because you're doing good, because you're helping people in need, that's, that's fine. Um, doing a hobby like getting in the garden, you know, planting something, uh, raking your yard or whatever. Those are not things for you're doing for profit. If you want to play your guitar on the Sabbath, enjoy life. It's a day of rest, right? It was made for man. You're, you're not a slave to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man's rest and enjoyment, right? So just uh, keep that in mind, and hopefully that's a blessing to you. Okay, Jason Kinney is asking about Revelation 10, 20, 2010. I said that backwards. Yes, I can, brother. Let's look at it on screen. All right. As always, we, we never want to take uh, something out of context. So we have to understand this particular segment of Revelation and the context therein. It starts in, in verse 7. So it says in verse 7, when the thousand years are completed... Satan will be released from his prison. He's going to go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth from Gog to Magog. That's a term referencing, it's, a, it's an idiomatic phrase referencing large geographical areas. And he's going to de deceive these nations to assemble them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the seashore. They march across the broad expanse of the earth. Yes, that's your flat earth verse. And they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Because remember, the people are repopulating the earth and they start outside the New Jerusalem and go outwards from there. So that's why there is an encampment outside the New Jerusalem of mortals that live outside the New Jerusalem. The beloved city in this passage is the New Jerusalem being referenced because this is at the end of the thousand years. And the New Jerusalem has already been on the ground for a thousand years. It says, but when when Satan deceives these people, creates an army, and they try to go fight the New Jerusalem, it says fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And then the devil who had deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and sulfur into which the beast and the false prophet had already been thrown. So it's just referencing the same thing that we saw that 
comes down with the New Jerusalem. Remember, the lake of fire is called Gehenna in the Greek, and it's inside the New Jerusalem. According to the book of Enoch, it's actually near the uh, in one of the valleys near the throne of Yeshua. So he's overseeing what gets thrown in there. Okay, because it's it's the final stop. You don't want to. You never want to lose. You don't want to accidentally fall into the throw the uh, lake of fire, right? So this is where it's just saying the devil is then thrown in the lake of fire. Same place, just quick, just as a reference for you for to understand. This is also in Revelation 19, where the beast and the false prophet were thrown at the beginning of the millennial reign. It says there they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so this is a phrase that we've talked about in the past. Their torment is this idea of their destruction. Okay, and this is um, this is something that a lot of people truly don't understand because they really they really get under they they miss Matthew 10:28 where Yeshua tells us that the lake of fire Gehenna is where the body and soul is destroyed. And so they they struggle with the idea of the torment being forever because they think it's a Catholic idea saying that they're actually going to somehow stay alive forever in the lake of fire and be burning. But that's not how burning works, according to things in the flesh. And that's not how the burning of the lake of fire is described by Yeshua himself. So you don't get your flesh back and then get burned again. You don't get your soul back and then get burned again. You're not perpetually being resurrected in the lake of fire and you're not being kept in some sort of suspended animation of half alive to be continually being burned. No, it's a the torment is forever, meaning that the place of destruction is final. The smoke rises forever because this, this lake of fire is never going away. You, anything that not you, but anything that gets thrown in there is going away. This is what Yeshua tells in Matthew 10, 28. But it's not that the, um, but there's, this is not a place of eternal life. Okay. So I just think that that's kind of un, to, hopefully that's um, uh, something to, to really remember is that Yeshua describes the idea of um, something that uh, is being tormented or, or destroyed is in the lake of fire. And that's, I think that that's, we, we have to keep this in mind. That's a place of destruction. Um, it's not a place of eternal life or reanimation, if that makes any sense. So this is this is one of the ideas where we have to look at the, the translators and how they're actually translating these things in comparison to their descriptions. So in the descriptions of First Enoch and Matthew 10, 28 and Yeshua, everything that goes into the lake of fire is destroyed. So and this is a word that the ancient translators would use as torture, but it doesn't mean you're staying alive forever. It means you're you're tortured, meaning you're you're killed basically right you're killed uh, hopefully that's a decent answer for you so it looks like we've got two brothers calling in we've got both west blaze and tom what's up brothers hey how's it going hey there guys thanks for calling in west blaze i can't hear you no worries hey, i'll go. let tom go ahead what's happening hey what's up guys yeah i got a um i have a question hey, tom? can you hear me i can hear you brother well, how you doing what's your question tonight hey by the way nice new cut Oh, thanks. Thanks. Okay. Um, I got a question about Jubilees. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just started reading it from front to back, and I got tripped up towards the beginning. I think it's chapter. I don't have any of my notes with me. I'm traveling right now, so I'm trying to go off memory. But uh, in chapter four, I think it is, when it's describing or starts describing the lineage uh, from Adam and Eve. Yeah. I don't know if you're going to pull it up or not, but the part that's is there is a big chapter. Is there a specific verse in chapter four? I think? That's what I'm saying. I don't, I didn't have my notes with me. I didn't expect to run into a Q and a, but I just jumped on it anyways. Okay. All so, right. uh, Adam and Eve have like, they got, they got the nine sons. They got Seth and Azura. 
and they've got Cain and Abel and Awan, I think. Yeah. Okay. So, right, and then you have the two two cases of of um, uh, brother sister marrying in to each other and starting starting two separate lines. Okay. Um, and I'm having trouble with this because when you you know. Leviticus, I think it's 18, says don't bang your sister. And you got two cases right. of that happening right now. That's right. And you, you could go, okay, well, yeah. I've heard a lot of people say, well, who else are they going to procreate with? Okay, it's fair. But then in the next two, I think it's two more generations, you have another uh, brother-sister intermarriage and then another one after that. That's right. So quick question before we go into a full explanation. Sure. Have you read the entirety of Jubilees? Or are you just starting to study it? Uh, I just started. I think I'm like maybe a quarter of the way through. And okay. uh, but I but I kept kept circling back because I'm like, wait, you know, Deuteronomy 13 test. Why is he saying uh, why is God saying um, be fruitful and multiply if the only way they could do that is to transgress the law? Okay. So let's take the Deuteronomy, according to how you're applying the Deuteronomy 13 test, let's take it and let's apply it to Genesis real quick. Mm -hmm. So Genesis tells us that Reuben took his stepmom. He should be dead. There should be no tribe of Reuben. All right. Yep. And Bilhah should be killed too. But neither were. Okay. Okay. So then is Genesis not legit? I'm just, I'm just, we're just walking through this, right? Let's just walk through. This. That's why I asked you if you've read the entirety of Jubilees, because this is actually explained in chapter 33. Okay. Right? So the angel, the angel tells in chapter 33, when Reuben defiles Bilhah and Jacob finds out, the angel says, this is why we didn't kill Reuben or Bilhah is because that law was not given to mankind yet. So if you remember the beginning of Jubilees is... Moses having a conversation with the angels for 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain Sinai. So this is our contextual qualifier of when this story, when the book of Jubilees and the conversations inside of it are taking place during what we would refer to as Exodus 19 or Exodus 24 through, through 35. Okay. So it's that 40 days and 40 nights. So this conversation is the angel telling Moses stories about the law and the prophets and the festivals that happened before him all the way from Adam up to his day. So he's actually, as he's given the law to Moses, he's explaining the law. This is actually what the word ordained means in reference in the book of Galatians 3.19, that the law was ordained by angels on Mount Sinai. And that word in the Greek means it was taught, it was explained. So this is why Jubilees is so fun, uh, such a beautiful find, um, both with archaeology, but also realizing that, oh, the ancient Israel did have this book, and they acknowledged they had this book. And then we find out in the first century they decided to tell people not to read this book mm -hmm. because it, it contradicts a ton of Judaism, by the way. But that's a whole nother, that's my other segment I'm doing with the book of Jubilees. This particular passage in chapter 33, the angels telling Moses, a part of this 40-day conversation, this is why Reuben's still alive. This is why we didn't kill Reuben. This is why there's a tribe of Reuben down at the base of the mountain right now is because we had not given this law to mankind yet. So therefore, they're not culpable. So that's my only understanding of 
propagation of mankind when you've only got four or five people. Right. Is because they had not been given the law yet. They were told to be fruitful and multiply. The father knew the genetics can handle it. And he's like, I'm not, you know, we, he basically, it's his own legal loophole since he made the laws. Yeah. They can't transgress a law that he hasn't given them. They don't know yeah. any better. So that's how he designed it. Okay. So the, that's a great question, right? It's one that I had when I first started studying Jubilees as well. And then I got to chapter 33 and I was like, oh my gosh, they actually addressed this. Like the <laughs> angel actually says we should, we would have killed Reuben because this is transgression of the law and specifically deserves a death penalty. This is actually what in first John five, John is referencing as a sin that leads unto death because that type of transgression, you're supposed to be killed before the sun goes down that day. So when you got, um, Cain and Abel offering sacrifices, that that's like, how, how much of the law do we know? We just don't know how much was given. We just don't. Hmm. We don't know. We don't even know how old they were. Clearly, they were already grown and had wives. So we that means Cain and Abel, or, uh, Adam and Eve already had multiple sons. And according to Jubilees, we know that um, Seth was born, um, or excuse me, not Seth, but um, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, they, they were seven years in the garden, and then it was another like 30 years before Cain was even born. Mm. And then I believe it was seven to 14 years after Cain was born that Abel was born. So they had already lived quite a long time. Um, I think I'm getting that right. I'm trying to remember my, yeah, with, with the year, the year count going down the side. And I wish I yeah. had, here's a little trick to the book of Jubilees, or at least to the most prevalent translation that you find on like pseudopickerfor.com. Don't I, it's an, it's an RH Charles translation. And I don't know how goofy. I don't know what happened. Exactly. Yeah. That's those are inserted by translators. And I don't know if it was by Charles or someone more recent. Mm -hmm. I don't know where those numbers came from. Don't pay attention to those numbers. That's why whenever I quote it on screen, I take them out <laughs> because I tried to do the math one time and I'm like, and then I realized, Oh, those are actual translator insertions. That's why they're in brackets. And it's not, it's not a part of the original text. It's some, somebody trying to be helpful, but apparently they were bad at math. Yeah, I don't know how, I, yeah, I don't know how they got those numbers. I was doing, I was checking on that too, like thinking, yeah. what is going on? But yeah, okay, okay. So let me ask. Uh, sorry, Wes. Let me ask just one more. Since I got you, it's uh, okay, brother. Go ahead. With uh, this one, might be an easy misunderstanding too. But in Testament of Twelve Patriarchs, I don't remember which book, but one of the guys. Towards the beginning, he says uh, he can't recall him ever sinning or ever committing a sin. Uh, yeah, I want to say that's Gad. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that just kind of like, I'm like, wait, so right. this might just be one of those bumper sticker things where people say the only guy who ever never sinned was Jesus. Um, and I, I actually can't remember if that is exactly how it works or not. Um, because if that's the case, then what is this guy talking about saying I've never sinned either? Uh, and so is, is that just one of those, you know, weird teachings that church picked up or what? No, I mean, Hebrews does say that Yeshua was without sin. So I, Not that part, I mean, the only guy who was ever without sin. It, it depends on how the father views sin. So it, this kind of goes to the fun question of the age of accountability. And I personally think it's it's actually a lot more gracious than 
than other people have said. I think it's 20 years old because that's what we see in Torah as far as when you can go in the military, when you're a part of the census and pay your temple shekel. And as far as, you know, other things involved, as far as even being able to um, help with the priesthood. So some, it seems like, and I could be wrong, but it seems like the age of accountability seems to be 20. So that means you've got 20 years to practice good behavior. So then if you are doing the Torah, and here's the here's the interesting part, and I'm trying to address, and I believe it's the Testament of Gad you're thinking of, okay? So here's the interesting part about Torah. And I'll talk about this a lot on my channel because it really requires a full teaching, okay? Just like in Luke chapter 1, verse uh, 4 through 7, talks about John the Baptist's parents were blameless and righteous in all their ways because they kept the full commandments of God. Does it mean that never sinned? Possibly not. But were they without sin when they died? According to the eyes of the Father, yes. Something else to keep so in mind is we don't have a Strong's Concordance for the Testament of Gad, the Testament 12 Patriarchs, to identify the true definition of the word that was used there. You know, I right. never sinned, could have been, I, I rarely sinned. Maybe but as a principle of the mechanics of Torah, if you are using Torah, meaning you're, you're allowing the priesthood to atone for your sin throughout the entirety of your life, then you die without sin does that understand that idea yeah but i think the wording was was something yeah. along the lines of i talking because it was talking about how good of a person he was yeah. right exactly yeah 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 so maybe it is a translator thing i don't know yeah yeah and that's another thing that i mean we'll probably get to it in the future as we cover uh the testament of 12 patriarchs and honor of kings but um or as we cover more of those, I should say, is that um, there are places in there where I've I've looked and looked and I've I've struggled to find the chain of custody as far as which translators besides R.H. Charles has gotten their hands on that because there's definitely some things inserted and it's it's knowingly inserted and that in the parentheses in there, and so I also would like to know exactly was it the Greek or the Latin they translated these from, and. Um, and then that's just part of my future quests to find more validation to this. Just like we have, you know, I've said this before, we have a ton of scholarship on the 66. But mm -hmm. some of these other books that are in other canons around the world that didn't make it into the Protestant American canon, we don't have all this, these scholars, we don't have the scholarship into all those books, you know? So um, it's a challenge. It can be a challenge. So I try to take the context of understanding that from my memory, even, even Gad, Gad's not professing to be the Messiah. Sure. He's definitely professing to be someone that kept the commandments his whole life. And that's what he tries to teach his kids. That's the point of every testament of the 12 patriarchs yeah. is they're having a conversation with their kids on his deathbed and, and they're trying to tell them to keep the commandments. So um, that leads you to what I just tried to describe, which is even if you sin, you have a priesthood within, within the practice of Torah, within the whole outlay of the law, you have a priesthood that atones for your sin. So therefore, when you you get to the place of Sheol and, and you're being judged, your soul's being judged on your behavior, the Messiah can look at you as if you're without sin because you've been atoned for. So because that's a part of the Torah, because even if the Messiah hadn't shown up yet, again, it deserves a full teaching because I'm kind of getting into the weeds. But yeah. um, I don't know how familiar you are with the Torah or the priesthood. So I'm just trying to give you some highlights. I got you. I'm, I'm trying to, I know your details guys. I'm trying to give you very specific yeah. questions. I appreciate it. I yeah. appreciate it. That's awesome. I don't know. Yeah. It's just two things I saw when I was reading these two. Articles. Those are great questions. Those are great questions, brother. I love the lens flare on your, on your camera as well, Tom. Looks yeah. very heavenly. Very, 
Nothing JJ like Abrams. Thanks a lot, brother. Appreciate the answers. No worries. Yeah, man. You're welcome to hang out with West Blaze's answer if you like, Tom. For sure, for sure. So um, I want to start by saying rest in peace to Jason Jason Shepard. Man, it was a, it was a mournful experience recognizing, realizing we lost him today. He's somebody that definitely provided words of encouragement to me and to uh, he, he shared a lot of our stuff, both of ours, and uh, he's missed. And so I just want to issue kind of a call of arms to pray for his family, his loved ones and friends. But um, nonetheless, Sean, this topic has come up a couple times now today and then um, recently on a tour portion where uh, you talked about prominent teachers having been mentioned, uh, having mentioned that they don't think that scripture was ever meant to be written down. Right. And it reminded me of a verse I came across in Enoch where I don't know what to make of it because it seems to to give credence to what they were saying, even though it doesn't make sense to me that it should be that way. But can, you might be I familiar. Guess? 69. Verse 7. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Starting, yep. Starting in verse, verse eight. Um, you know, the angel that taught children of men, and he taught uh, mankind writing with ink and paper. And then it goes on to say, for men were not created for such a purpose to give confirmation to their good faith with pen and ink. So I'd I'd be very curious to, to know your your take on that because, yeah, I. I don't know because the rest of the book of Enoch is nothing but him explaining what he saw on heavenly tablets and then copying it down to pass it down to mankind. So to describe one of the rebellious angels, and that was what he was saying. That's, that's where I start to wonder, is it quoting that rebellious angel or is that an ex is that commentary from the good angels to Enoch about how that rebellious angel was involved in deceiving mankind with, uh, written incantations and sorceries. Am I, am I, am I in the same chapter as you are in 69? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking about the same passage. Um, because yeah, okay. it, it makes you wonder. Yes. It's a, it's a peculiar passage. It definitely is. Here's the, here's the biggest trouble with the book of Enoch that I've, I've mentioned it a couple times. Um, but let me, just, let me pull this verse up and I'll put it on screen for us real quick. Um, but it is hard to, to, I have to kind of remind folks about this. That um, here it is. So the book of you see this little place right here. So in between verse six and seven, you got this is page ninety. So there's a break in the fragments that the R.H. Charles is piecing together. These fragments between the Greek. So these little these little green brackets right here is supposedly an indication you see this green bracket right here supposedly like i said earlier that's an indication of the Giaz or the greek and if it's a double i think if it's double green it's greek if it's single green it's eat Giaz. i see the sacred text version has that but like you know the pseudopigrapher.com doesn't have all those right. notations so that's helpful yeah and so that and then of course these little crosses right here means there was a corruption in the text and he's doing his best to fill in the word some guesswork so even, absolutely. even the fragment that he had there was like a i guess a rub spot that was worn he couldn't actually make out the letters very well so yeah. he tried to, that's why i wouldn't trust all these spellings you know you're just he's just doing the best he could with to fill in this fragments of an ancient text that was buried <laughs> i feel it I, hey i'm i'm for one grateful that he attempted so <laughs> me too <laughs> that me we too, have something sure. here so what we see here, he goes page 90. That means he's piecing together to give us the rest of this. He's piecing together another different page, page 90 of what 
I don't know because I can't get to the original fragments, the thousands of fragments that are laid out in the museum in Israel and from the, uh, uh, from the, not the Giyas, not just the Giyas, but from the Greek texts that were found yeah. in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. right. So I, I don't exactly know exactly what page of 90 he's pulling this from. Um, but that's, that's the little indications it gives you to say that, and that's why like right here, like verse 16, it seems to be broken up and then, Oh, here's page 91 and he's going to it. And so for example, this in chapter 60, this is 69, but in chapter 60, here's a, a great example. Cause you go to, to verse seven and then it skips to verse 25 really? and you're like, wait, what, what, <laughs> what happened to the other verses? And why did you choose to label those one through seven and then 25 through, Oh, it's because there's this in the middle between those passages. Yeah. So he's looking at fragments he's putting together. Okay. So with all that said, behind the scenes stuff, right? Okay. Knowing that he's piecing together the the um the Greek and the Gias, I don't understand verse nine. I don't understand it fully to the point where I'm saying, is this something that he pieced together from one of the languages from the Gias and he just was a poor translation? Or is it specifically about this uh rebellious angel? Uh, Pinamu, who taught the children of men bitter and sweet and taught them all the secrets of the wisdom and he instructed mankind in writing ink with paper and therefore, thereby many sin from eternity to eternity unto this day. I don't even recognize this particular idiomatic phrase. Yeah, I don't I don't I mean, I'm trying to be as honest with you as possible. So for men were not created for such a purpose to give confirmation to their good faith <laughs> with pen and ink. So I don't know if this is just a reference to occultic behavior where you as you um, from what little I know about spells and sorcery and all that kind of stuff is that you would write down your spells because you're putting faith into those spells. And that's a part of the power that you put into the spell is that you got to write it down. And then that's why they would write their symbols on things and on doors and on the floor and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know if that's what it's referring to, because to me, I do know that when you talk about the bitter and the sweet, it's referring to witchcraft. Ah, Children of men, the bitter and the sweet. Okay. Is that making sense? Yeah, I'm I'm picking up what you're putting down. So when we see the word faith, we immediately think good faith in God, right? Okay. So this is where I'm not I'm not sure if it's truly talking about if the context is truly talking about faith in God. That's why I just started off to say I really don't know, but this is my best guess from the context. Yeah, for sure. It could definitely have something to do with witchcraft, and we definitely get things lost in translation from what little is available. I can understand that. Yeah, in yes, fact, sir. I'm pretty sure the uh, Emerald Tablet also has this, this like um, Isaac Newton's translations of the Emerald Tablet. It was multiple times he talks about the bitter and the sweet, and uh, I, I don't think the Emerald Tablet, to my understanding, is anything good. So, yeah, it's a highly, highly praised object of the occult. I understand. I suppose the only other topic that I could touch on, it might be a big conversation, though, is uh, I see another uh, brother in the faith that we both know that is uh, toying with the idea that scripture was so heavily edited that everything pertaining to sacrificial system and anything that declared that Yahweh condones meat eating and animal sacrifices of that sort, he he's he's investigating the idea that it was all inserted, that scriptures so heavily you so know and so i, I want to know how to encourage believers like that that are that are hearing information that it's that's causing them to question the entire thing to where they would have to throw out so much it's bothersome 
Is he also vegan? No, actually. No? Okay. Because that's the argument I've heard from vegans and vegetarians. is specifically and, that everything pertaining to sacrifices and meat was inserted and that the word meat used to mean uh, vegetables, but it was actually changed to actually mean animals. So it, to me, it'd be crazy because then you're like, okay, well, how does Leviticus 1 talks about dissecting a vegetable and t- cutting its The entrails of the from, vegetable? Yeah, they burn the height of a vegetable, but not... <laughs> yeah, okay, but anyway. So yeah, that's where the brother like you're talking about would take it even another level and say, well, those other words were just inserted because we... So basically, the, the problem you have with that is you can't trust anything in your Bible. If you've got the, the sacrificial concept of of the priests and everything around the priests i mean it's the whole reason for the temple it's the whole reason for the you know the the bronze altar the 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 boiling sea it's it's for all the levites duties and jobs to supplement the high priests who would bring these forests and the levites themselves receive the sacrifices at the doorway of the tent and temple from the actual people so all that context all that is literally it's like 90 percent of your bible that's what i would that's my thoughts at least a good chunk yeah great deception is what i feel that brother has fallen into he, de- then, he definitely you, said you that he was have... just looking into it, but still, I wanted yeah. to try to have the words to encourage him to, you know, there's yeah. there's nothing that you can look into that's going to validate this idea that all of it is, should just be thrown out. No, because then, I mean, the wedding, wedding supper of the lamb is thrown out. Um, the, the righteous sacrifices of Isaiah 56 and the kingdom are thrown out. All of Ezekiel Zechariah 14. Is out. Zechariah 14 is thrown out. Like, the whole reason for Ezekiel 40 through 44 is thrown out, if you got to throw out for chapter 45. So, hmm. You know, you got problems. You got lots and lots and lots of problems. Yes, sir. Yeah. So unfortunately, there's a lot of deception running around. And um, and that's that's the crazy part about the second Exodus conversation is that the guy who came up with it, Shmel Asher, also said the exact same thing, that the Old Testament God who demanded sacrifices was a evil demigod and was different than the New Testament God. Because specifically because of meat being sacrificed because he was an animal lover and a vegetarian. And that's the guy who came up with the second Exodus theory, wrote a book about it in 1980s. So unfortunately, there's a lot of deception out there that that's connected to other deceptions, you know? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Well, I look so, forward to uh, tomorrow's episode. I'll see you then, what, brother. What would you think? What would you, what would be your first go-to if you had to, if you were put on the spot, and you had to answer that question to your brother. What do you think you would like? What do you think you would say to him? Well, so I I just pointed out to him that there are you know the consistent message of the scriptures is that you know from Genesis one twenty nine when you look in the Greek uh, all the way through the millennial reign we see that that the Father doesn't change in that regard, and that uh, it's part of His system of atonement that there's life in the blood. And that he designed it this way so that we didn't always have to take the punishment so that there could be atonement made still. And that, uh, yeah, that there's just way too much that we would have to disregard to where you're only left with tiny slivers, where you're leaving, you're left to have to question the entire basis of the faith if you're taking out so much of that and saying that this was, you know, nefariously edited. And so that's the, the best I could do. That's what I was reaching out to you yeah. to see. What more encouragement I could give? Did he say when he thinks it was nefariously edited? No. Okay. That's Yeah, that's why I was like the Septuagint, the findings of the Qumran caves. These both verify that the scriptures have been the same for over 2,000 years now. 
Yeah. In that regard. Yeah. It's true. But thank you for your, your commentary on it, brother. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, um, Oh, Tom's asking, Tom, you can, you can ask your question if you like. I didn't interrupt. I was going to ask, did he ever say what he thinks wasn't nefariously edited? Did he say what he thinks wasn't? Yeah, if he's picking out saying this was this was edited, that was edited. Does is there anything that he feels is like hard rock? That's what I'm worried about. Like what what next is he gonna say? You know, yeah. that I need to throw out because I can't trust any of these words. So yeah, no, he didn't clarify that. But yeah, it was alarming to see, especially when somebody just says, uh, hey everybody, I just want y'all to know I'm looking into this. Like Maybe usually that's yeah. that's after they've already looked into it. Nah, yeah, <laughs> they're willing to talk about it, promote it, and that's the sad part. It is because social media you can find anybody to support any crazy wind of doctrine on social you media. You can, you can. It's and frustrating. They'll bring, they'll bring support and a heartbeat to you because whether it's just the nature of the algorithm or if it's just the nature of the crazy that goes along with social media, like you could, you know, you could say, "Oh, I just found out that you know, um, I just found out that." Plastic is, is actually just an ancient form of fuel for Tartaria. And then <laughs> suddenly, I'm going to have 100 people in that post dropping Tartaria videos and trying to tell me that they've been making plastic in their backyard for two weeks now, and they're, they're about to fuel their future empire. And I'm like, you know, this is just, it doesn't mean that any of it's real. It just, that's, this is just what happens on social media. And it's really, for people that are not grounded in the word, it, social media can be dangerous sometimes like because you can you can find like all types of offshoots real quick to jump into on social media yeah. any group you want for any any wind of doctrine is on social media so it's like it can be a blessing it can be a curse but i'm blessed that the fact that apparently he's got communication with you and uh you have an influence in his life so just keep at it brother absolutely yeah I shared quite a few of your videos right where you you covered those topics and uh i was just trying to think of anywhere in those where you may have address that idea that that because you see two two veins of the the veganism believers is that they you know a will will take verses out of context and and just say that that was done away with or it was never intended as a result of sin uh after the fall and then you have this other vein that i've seen more often than not that will say you know what it's all been been edited and and changed and that's not that type of stuff was forced in there and it's like, man, you either have to really not believe the scriptures or you definitely don't believe the scriptures at that point. And it's tough because, you know, you feel accountable to want want people to be on the right track. And when you love them, it's hard not to want to speak up for them, help them. Yep, we got another. Sorry, brother. We got another spammer in the in the live chat tonight. Uh oh, yeah. It was, yeah, I back. was the only one. <laughs> was it the uh, all the Asian characters? The. No, this is the this is the guy trying to this just a bot trying to spam. Porn That's what I figured was going on earlier. I was trying to give yeah. the benefit of the doubt that there was you know somebody just speaking another language and we couldn't yeah. get the little translation, but they had like six comments back to back that were paragraphs long. So yeah, yes sir. But appreciate what you're doing. Hey man, appreciate your Anybody questions, else? guys. Yeah. yeah, I'll take some more from the live chat unless you guys have further questions. No, nah, I'm out of here. I'm gonna eat some dinner. Much love. All right, Shalom. Talk to you tomorrow night, brother. All right, see you, Sean. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. All right, guys. 
Put your questions in all caps, please, so I can easily see them. If you asked it at the beginning of uh, Tom Tom's question, which was like 10, 15 minutes ago, it's probably already lost in the chat. So just copy paste and ask it again. That way I can see it refreshed. All right, Rachel Sung is asking, what does Luke 17, 34 through 37 mean, specifically verse 37? Let's go there. look at it together on screen okay so she's asking to start with 34 and go to 37 but i tell you what let's start with with verse 30 it says that it will be just like that on the sun on excuse me it will be just like that on the day the son of man is revealed on that day let no one on the housetop come down to retrieve his possessions likewise let no one in the field return for anything he has left behind remember lot's wife Whoever tries to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two men, two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. Jesus says, wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. So a lot of people have thought this is the uh, rapture moment here. I don't believe this is the rapture moment personally. Um, uh, personally... <laughs> To me, this is a this is the moment where um, he's talking about the the end of days in Luke seventeen. It's when the Son of Man is revealed. Okay, so this means he's coming quickly in the sky, and all eyes will see him. And so there's going to be a moment here where people are being there's there's a lot going on in this day. Okay, Jerusalem's being invaded and destroyed. It's being pillaged and sacked, and so. And it's the the armies that have assembled to come in. A huge portion of the armies have assembled to the north into the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Armageddon. They're going to be fighting uh, at Yeshua and the angels at his return. Another portion is going through Judea and all the different cities, and they're attacking. And then another portion is actually invading Jerusalem itself because the two witnesses have been dead for three days, and they haven't gotten up yet. And so the forces of the enemy think it's okay to come into Jerusalem. But this is why in this quick moment here, you're going to have um, the, res- the great resurrection happens. And that, to my understanding, that is the, the people that are being taken. So when in 1 Corinthians 15, okay, so this is going to be, just, just bear with me, okay, because I'm trying to explain, a, this is a, a lot going on on the day of the Lord, okay, and with, in addition to the buildup I just explained, now we're, we're looking at the two people that are, like, take the verse 35, um, by the way, Jesus Jesus doesn't technically answer their question. Okay, he speaks cryptically in this moment. He doesn't technically answer the question, but it's fine. Other scriptures help us understand with this context um, things that are happening at when the Son of Man is going to be revealed, which is at the seventh trumpet. The first resurrection happens. Okay, so this is a time when the city itself, the city of Jerusalem, is going to be invaded. So people are saying, "Look, get out of town. This is going to be a day of invasion." Because you may you may get killed, but you may not. You may be preserved. You may save your life. That's if you don't believe. If you're not going to take part in the resurrection, this is definitely going to apply. 
right? You're going to, you don't want to get killed by the force of the Antichrist. You want to preserve your life because you may be judged as one of the goats in the Matthew 25 sheep and goats judgment after the battle of Armageddon and after Yeshua and the city is set down and everybody's being judged, right? That's part of Matthew 13, 49 to 51, where the angels come down and they've cordoned off, the, they've separated the righteous from the wicked. Okay. So, but the idea of this is this person, someone that uh, is taken out of their bed in the middle of the night. This is something that I believe it's referring to the first resurrection, which like Paul tells us in first Corinthians 15, not everybody is going to be dead first. Okay. There's some that will be alive and remain at his coming and not everybody's going to be in the, in the grave. Not everyone's going to be asleep and dead first. I know that that person technically was in their bed at night. So I don't want to confuse anybody with the idea of them being asleep, but it's just this idea that um, it says he tells you a mystery. Not everybody's going to be dead, but we'll all be changed. So that means in the instance, in a, a twinkle of an eye at the last trumpet, the last trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. That is when the Son of Man is revealed, the last trumpet. Okay? So this is this moment where these two people are in bed. One woman stays, and the other person is taken. Where they well, they've been resurrected and they're taken, Matthew 13 30, wheat to the barn. They're part of the first resurrection, they're taken away. So there's a lot being summarized in Luke 17, 30 through 37, I grant you. And this is where I've always talked about understanding the details and the descriptions of the first resurrection is so important. That's why it's talked about all over the place in scripture and prophecy and all the prophets. Lining up the timing of the, the last trumpet is our contextual clue and indicator in this passage to help us just say, okay, the Son of Man's being revealed. That's the seventh trumpet. What happens at the seventh trumpet? Oh, people are being raised from the dead, and those who are alive and remain, they're also going to be caught up in the air that's coming. This is what Paul expresses in First Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 17. Okay. He says this, brothers, I don't want you to be informed about those who sleep in death, that they may not grieve like the rest who are without hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we also believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. By the word of the Lord, we declare to you that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, the loud commands, shout the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. There's that trumpet of God, that last trumpet, the seventh trumpet, Revelation 11. And the dead in Christ will be will be the first to rise. And then after that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So that's where, if you're still alive, you haven't died at the seventh trumpet, your body is changed in the twinkling of an eye. And you're given this immortal body, right? Incorruptible body, this resurrection body, this glorified body like Yeshua has. And so that's, that's why you have at this revealing of the Son of Man, as the armies are invading Jerusalem, which is talked about in other passages in Zechariah and Joel and different places in Matthew 24. There's going to be an incredible moment where the resurrected or the first resurrection event, that's why I always call it the event, the first resurrection event, because in that one event, two different things happen. Those who are dead get their eternal bodies, and then those who are alive and remain, their mortal bodies are changed in the twinkle of an eye to eternal bodies, immortal bodies. The dead in Christ rise first, those who are changed in the twinkle of an eye to their immortal bodies rise with them, slightly behind them, but they're all being escorted by angels. So that's how they're being harpazo. That's how they're being snatched away. That's that's what that word taken in the Greek means, that they're it's harpazo. They're being taken away. Hopefully it's a decent answer for you. It's a great question. It requires a little bit of breaking down. 
Uh, Chris is asking which pick for books should we not read? Check out my Honor of Kings playlist on my main channel, Kingdom in Context. And that's where we actually go through uh, the ones that are good and bad. So there's there's too many for me just to list off right now, brother. I'm sorry, but that's the best I can offer you right now is that playlist. Um, Rachel saying verse 37 is talking about those who are defeated at his return. Because remember, Yeshua's coming back with warrior angels. He's going to be destroying the armies of the ten kings that collaborated with the beast and the second beast to actually try to fight Yeshua's return. So unfortunately, none of those people are going to be victorious against the angels of God. So it's going to be a rough day. Um, this is what Second Ezra 13 talks about. That um that uh they basically start turning and fighting on themselves because they're so afraid when they see Yeshua coming through the clouds with the angels and the new Jerusalem behind them. And yeah, it's a, it's a bad time. So there's a lot of deadness. That's why revelation 14 talks about the blood being up to the horse's bridle. Um, whether that's literal or not, I know a lot of people like to argue that's a metaphoric phrase, but whether it's literal or not, all the forces of the enemy are going to be killed. Anyone that tries to resist Yeshua and his angels coming down to clear out the land so the New Jerusalem can set down, anyone that tries to resist that and fight against them will be killed that day. So it's, um, he's. So basically, where the carcasses gather and the vultures are, it's going to be a lot of dead people. That's why the angels got to come through. Joel 3, this army, they got to come through that whole area and they're going to burn it all with fire. They have to clear and cleanse the land where the new Jerusalem is going to set down. But before they get to it all, because it's going to take them quite a time, uh, to my understanding, it's going to take them about a week, almost a full week. Uh, there's going to be time for the vultures to start gathering, right? Because there's dead, there's dead bodies. That's what vultures do. All right. Brother Gassan, I appreciate the, the idea. I just, don't have them all down yet because we don't have um we don't have um let me put it like this there's a lot of the apocryphal books that because there's a lot of them from different different time periods um that we're trying to cover as fast as we can on honor of kings but there's life is just you know getting in the way um i understand what you're saying but i feel like it would be a disservice to our efforts to just publish a blatant list um because it would still it would still be the ones that we uh, so basically we just basically we wouldn't have to do the show anymore um and then people would not be able to see it. the show is not about the list specifically itself the show is about you understanding how we're evaluating the books that we encounter so if you just had a list you're not gonna have a clue why well, I said the the epistle of Nicodemus is bunk or the gospel of Nicodemus is bunk. You're not going to have a clue of why I said that, right? If I just published a list. So you've got to, 
uh, that's why we go through the process and we, we put Deuteronomy 13 on the screen. We talk about it and we show you the breakdown of how it doesn't line up theologically or contextually or historically from its manuscript history of chain of custody. We try to show you like there's some big problems here or if there's doubt in the chain of custody, but yet the theology is spot on, then we have a serious decision to make, right? This is why I'm just going to give you a quick teaser. No one's going to like us when we review Jasher. So, <laughs> and by the way, guys, uh, Ken and I have been talking on the 12th of September. We're, we're trying to get back and do another episode of Honor Kings. So. Uh, Royce Bell. Hey, welcome, brother. I need a specific question. Uh, Enoch 53 is, uh, can be a, I mean, there's a lot to talk about in there. So. If you have a specific question, I'd be happy to try to address it. Okay, Abraham Sewell, welcome, brother. Um, looks like you're asking I'm behind a little, but that passage that was brought up from Enoch about writing seems to me about surety, good faith confirmed by written contract rather than simply their word. Um, well, I, yeah, you may you may have just uh, gotten to that point of the video, but we we go on to explain, or at least I go on to to admit, I don't know exactly what it's saying, but from the context, it seems as if they're talking about practices of the occult. And the word faith is not being used in reference to faith in God, but faith in the practices of the occult of writing down the spells as they're cast as a part of its power and enchantment, its incantation. So that's because it's, a, it's the practices of a bad angel, a rebellious angel teaching bad practices to mankind. Jason Kinney's asking, will you ever look at the assumption of Moses? Yes. It's probably going to be in season four of Honor of Kings, but yeah, we'll we'll take a look at it. Okay, Royce, I, brother, I if I can, if I could, if I could uh, lovingly plead with you, if you could give me a a direct question, like give me a give me a well formed, full sentence, well formed question about your your question about this passage. Um, cause I want to, I want to be able to address your questions, but I just have to understand them. So I uh, watch with a trumpet. I've heard, I've heard people try to make a case for that and I've seen the breakdowns that they try to do it. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, to me, I don't see any great theological implication either way. I'm not trying to be disrespectful to the people that really hang on to that idea, but I don't really see one way or another how it changes anything. Um, so I've never been that interested in it, I guess, is the way to put it. Um, Callie J, yes, I've actually explained Mark 1, Mark 9, 1 in some previous Kingdom casts where we review... Um, but yeah, we'll go into it. Let's jump in it real quick because you actually is basically remember the Greek. There is no chapters and verses, so it's just a continuation of Mark chapter eight. So let's go to Mark chapter eight and let's read it towards the end of it. This is a famous passage that trips a lot of people up because they think that Mark nine is a somehow different conversation than Mark chapter eight. So if we go for start in verse thirty four, it says then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he told them, if anyone wants to come to me, 
come after me, be his disciple. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Meaning you have to selflessly give over your personal desire and will in order to be his disciple, because that's what leads to your resurrection, because you're discipling after the, the judge who's going to resurrect you. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. So this is the, the beautiful poetic dichotomy that the issue is trying to say is, look, man, if you, you want to actually save your life, you got to lose your life. You know, this is lots of sermons have been done on this. Verse 36, what, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? If any, this is reminds me of Psalm 49, verse 7 through 10. It's talking about how it's, it's impossible to purchase your soul. You can't, you can't give anything in exchange for the redemption of your soul. Only the Son of Man can do that. He says, uh, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes with his Father's glory with all the angels. So when the judge comes to judge, if you reject the judge because you're ashamed of the judge, if you don't like the judge, if you reject his instruction, his appointment by the Father, his placement as King of Kings and the High Priest, then of course he's not going to let you into his kingdom when he shows up to judge everybody. So verse 9, and then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God arrive with power. So this is amazing, right? And this is, just like he says in Matthew, this is talking about the second death, okay? Like, like Yeshua tells us, it's not, it's not the death of the body that you need to be worried about. It's the death of the body and the soul in the lake of fire in Gehenna. And that is what Revelation 20 directly tells us. This is the second death right here so this this is the second death the lake of fire okay so this is where i know it doesn't say it but you just have to understand the the previous context of matthew of mark chapter 8 talking about losing your life and saving it and understanding the resurrection you're talking to the high priest who judges you to give you eternal life what does he say? You lose it for his sake and for what? The gospel. What did Jesus preach? The gospel of the kingdom. When does the kingdom come? When Yeshua returns with his father's holy angels and in glory to judge the world and establish peace on the earth. The first resurrection happens. Then the sheep and goats judgment happens, right? So if, if truly his disciples standing there listening to him, some of them, not Judas, unfortunately. I don't know about Judas, but for the most part, it seems like the rest of them, Stand there, listen. They will not see the second death. They will not be judged to the lake of fire. They will get resurrected. They will see the kingdom coming in glory because they'll be there. The first thing that happens on the day of the Lord before the kingdom even descends, you actually are taken to the kingdom at the resurrection by angels to the new Jerusalem that is still descending through the firmaments. So you're you do get to see it coming in glory, and you'll see Yeshua coming in glory. That's what Paul tells us in First Thessalonians four thirteen through eighteen that we. Meet Yeshua in the area that's coming. Okay, let me put this on big screen so you can see my hands. Resurrected, you didn't see the second death. You're not tasting death. You're you're you've died your first death, but then you're resurrected to see Yeshua that's coming. He's coming down to fight Battle of Armageddon. You're taken to the New Jerusalem, locked away in your room, away from the wrath of the Lamb, away from the indignation of the Lord. You'll never taste the second death. Okay, but you will see the kingdom come because you'll be alive again. Hopefully this, this is why I'm always talking about the gospel of the kingdom, guys, because this is this is exactly what Yeshua said in Mark chapter eight, where he's talking about um, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Well, the gospel is what? It's the gospel of the kingdom. So the good news is what the word gospel means. 
is when the kingdom comes. So this is why he can say in verse nine, just well, it's actually chapter nine, verse one, but it's just in the same sentence, in the same, in the same breath, the same conversation. Verse one, then Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, there's some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God arrive with power. It's a beautiful promise because he's talked, just like he said to the thief on the cross, that he would be resurrected and be in paradise with Yeshua. He's essentially saying the same thing to his disciples right here. Because they did what he said they needed to do right here. He said they needed to lose their life to save it. And they're not ashamed of him because they're following him. They're part of his disciples, right? They've denied themselves to follow Yeshua. So they're doing the, the formula. And Yeshua is saying, if you do this formula for my sake and for the good news of the kingdom of God coming, if you do it for those reasons, you, you save your soul and you will not taste death. So just like Yeshua in Matthew 19 talked about um, how blessed those are who specifically made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. So that's, yeah, people, I guess the biggest disconnect with little passages like that is why we started our channel. People don't understand the actual good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus preached. They don't understand the resurrection that Jesus preached, that Jesus is the judge over. And I'm not, I'm not really speaking, Callie J, I'm not really speaking to you um, specifically right now. I know that you've been watching this for a while, but that those big ideas, the idea that the promise of the covenant is the resurrection, that the high priest of the covenant is the one that resurrects you, that the purpose of your resurrection is so that you become a priest, an unstoppable Melchizedek that goes to the New Jerusalem and lives in there and inherits that land forever. And that land actually descends down to the ground and starts the millennial reign to create peace on the earth. And that is what it means to be saved. Like that whole context of those big component pieces of the gospel of the kingdom Hardly anyone understands that stuff. So therefore, this is why Mark 9.1 can trip people up. So hopefully that's a decent answer for you. Okay, Royce Bell, appreciate you. So you're saying, you're asking, is Enoch 53 the same great white throne judgment? Let's look at it on screen. Okay, says there might sell a deep valley with open mouths and all who dwell on the earth and sea and islands shall bring to him gifts and presents and tokens of homage is Isaiah 61, by the way. But that deep valley shall not become full and their hands commit lawless deeds and the sinners devour all whom they lawlessly oppress. Yet the sinners shall be destroyed before the face of the Lord of spirits and they shall be banished from off the face of his earth and they shall banish. Now, this is the this particular is the uh, first. This is the sheep and goats judgment, by the way. This is not the great white throne judgment for I saw the angels of punishment abiding there and preparing all the instruments of Satan. And I asked the angels of peace women for whom are these preparing these instruments? And he said to me, they prepare these for the kings and the mighty of this earth that there might, that they, that they may thereby be destroyed. So this is the, the same kings that are hiding in revelation six, 11 through 14, that want the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the lamb. They're the guys being dragged up into the new Jerusalem before the throne of Yeshua to be judged. So they're going to get to see the incredible land of promise that they're not going to get to get. Because the only thing that they're going to see after they see Yeshua is the valley next to them where the lake of fire is. And they'll be thrown in there and destroyed. Well, I, I, I take that back. Not the kings of the earth. The beast and the false prophet are thrown in there. But to my understanding, the kings of the earth, um, they're actually killed with the sword by the angels. I apologize um, because that's also in Matthew 25. And then they'll they'll be dead in Sheol, and they'll get resurrected at the Great White Throne Judgment and destroyed in the Lake of Fire later. But um, but yeah, that's they're still brought into the New Jerusalem before the throne of Yeshua to be judged. This is the uh, this is the Matthew twenty five sheep and goats judgment. 
Uh, controversy of Elohe, I, 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 I don't, I honestly don't think it is, um, personally, brother. Not that I know of. I don't think America is Babylon, or I don't think it's um, the the great Babylon. It's just a tool of the worldwide system of Babylon. Okay. Okay. Jason Kinney is asking, do you think any of the seals have been opened? Also, what are your thoughts on the sixth seal? So personally, I don't, I don't think any of the seals have been opened. It's my understanding. I don't, I don't think so. Um, Cause I, I personally believe they began at the 42 months that Apollyon is let out. Um, he's the, uh, the the rider on the white horse holding a bow and a crown, and he's given he's he rides out to overcome and conquer. So I think that that begins his forty two month reign where he's given authority to uh, go out and try to conquer the nations and persecute the saints. And so I think that the first seal begins at the beginning of the forty two months, and then the sixth seal is actually happening really close to the seventh seal, and it's um it's this you know crazy earthquake. It's the firmament being rolled back, and it's um, it happens like right upon the day of the Lord, you know, it's right at the very bat at the very last It's basically like, it's almost happening, um, on the last day. And I mean, it is happening on the last day and it's happening in conjunction with the bull, the wrath, the bulls of wrath. I should say that properly as they're being poured out. So hopefully that's helpful to you. It's just, I don't have, unfortunately I have any kind of chart or breakdown to give you a better picture, but All right, guys, I'm going to take one more question. We've done uh, a couple hours here. I appreciate you guys participating. Let me see here. Um, Building the House is asking, which scripture section is best for me to study if the Levite priests were busy with the priesthood before Sinai, or point me to a video. Which scripture sections? But well, it's Exodus 19. It, there's priests at the base of the mountain. Um, Moses and Levi were Moses and Aaron were Levites. And which scripture section is best for me to study? Um, well, it's also uh, Jubilees 32. In fact, if you'd like, just go to here. Let me show you. Uh, if you go to my Kingdom of Context channel, it's uh, the video I did. Um, just last Friday night, and we put this on screen for you to look at. So it's this video right here, okay? It's just streamed from four days ago. Go to Kingdom in Context, my main channel. It's titled His Unstoppable Melchizedek. I break it down, and I have an entire segment in there for about 20 25 minutes where I show you the history of the Levites and um, how they received you know, that specific lineage from the Melchizedek priesthood. And so that's, that'd probably be a, a really good starting place for you. Hopefully that helps. Okay, guys, sorry if I didn't get to your question tonight. Um, I appreciate, there's some really good questions here tonight. I really appreciate it, guys. And um, 
may you be blessed. If you would, just um, keep uh, Jason Shepard's family in your prayers, if those of you who know him, and make sure that he, um, just keep him in your, keep his family in your prayers, because he passed just recently, and um, it's just, it's it's heartbreaking. So, all right, appreciate everybody, and you guys be blessed. We'll see you next time.